Well, good morning to all of you, and uh, my name is Tom Nelson. Welcome to the Leewood campus. Um, as you probably picked up this morning, we are delighted as a church family across our campuses to partner uh, with prayer and financial support with Elam Ministry. Elam Ministry uh, serves and strengthens the church in Iran. We also stand together across our campuses today as a church family in prayerful solidarity of the persecuted church around the world. Truly, this is an extraordinary hour in the history of the church. Never before in the history of the church have more followers of Jesus endured such unjust suffering because of their faith in over 2,000 years. And uh, we want to stand with them, and I'd like you to join me in prayer as we pray. Heavenly Father, our hearts are stirred. When we hear of our brothers and sisters in Iran who are facing such intense persecution and unjust suffering, we pray for our dear friend Farshid and his family, that you would tenderly care for them this day, that you would strengthen and sustain them. We ask for your your provision, your guidance, your protection for the ministry of Elam, for David and Bahid and the entire Elam team as they seek to expand and strengthen the church in Iran. We pray for your sustaining strength, your encouraging hope, your supernatural joy for all our brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe, who are being tortured, raped, abused, imprisoned, and executed for following you. O Jesus, our Savior and Lord, the light of the world, who stepped into such hideous darkness, open our blinded eyes to your transforming grace and truth. And may your glorious gospel, may its brilliant and compelling message go forth to the world. Holy Spirit, renew and reform your church, both here in Kansas City and around the world. Lord Jesus, in the crucible of unjust suffering, may your church become a more beautiful bride. And how we long for that day, yet future, when you will make all things new, and we, your bride, will be with you forever in the new heavens and new earth. And in this time between, in this expectant season of Advent, Teach us now, as we open your holy word, transform our lives, and may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we pray. God's people said, amen. Well, this week, the spotlight of the world has been on South Africa. Leaders of the world have gathered to commemorate the life of Nelson Mandela, Nelson Mandela died at age 95, and his life is truly an amazing life. For 27 years, Nelson Mandela experienced the crucible of suffering for his opposition to such an evil injustice for his people, the evil of apartheid. And if you read his autobiography, which I encourage you to read, Long Walk to Freedom, you are stunned by his life. He describes the day he walked out of prison with these words. When I was among the crowd, I raised my right fist and there was a roar. I had not been able to do that for 27 years, and it gave me a surge of strength and joy. As I finally walked through the gates to enter a car on the other side, I felt even at the age of 71 that my life was beginning anew. My 10,000 days of imprisonment were over. 
I think for most of us, with such a vast distance of our cultural location and experience, have a hard time wrapping our hearts and minds around what it would be like to spend 10,000 days in prison for seeking to do what is right and to confront evil in the world. I think for the Christian or for the non-Christian, for the skeptic, for any worldview, suffering in this world is one of the hardest things for all of us to comprehend, is it not? And I think particularly in that struggle of our existential hearts, our dissonance of our hearts, is unjust suffering. That is, the suffering that comes from doing what we believe is right or for confronting an evil in the world. And most of us here this morning, I trust, will not find ourselves behind a prison or in a prison cell behind bars for what we believe is right, for the fact that we are Christians, but we do suffer unjustly in other ways. Unjust suffering is true in the world for all of us, including Christians. There are many ways I think we face unjust suffering in our lives if we're faithful to follow Jesus. Students, you may experience, as I did when I was younger, following Christ in high school, the stinging words of rebuke or ridicule because of your unwillingness to participate in certain kinds of parties or certain kinds of entertainments or involve things that are contrary to your faith and moral commitment. You may not find yourself on a Friday night in prison, but you may find yourself on a Friday night at home in a very lonely space. All of us who seek to follow Jesus faithfully will encounter unjust suffering. Some of us, as adults particularly, will face it on the job, in the workplace. I'll never forget a friend of mine who was a broadcaster, who was a very successful broadcaster. He told me one day at lunch he had a final broadcast interview. He was the leading candidate. They were having dinner with the final group, and they asked him right before they were ready to give him the job, What charity do you want to promote? That's part of our role as a company. And when he mentioned the Christian charity, the CEO of the organization looked at the waiter and said, I'll take our check now. He said, I would encourage you to catch a flight home early. Needless to say, my friend never got that job. Some of us, as we go home to Christmas time or an Advent context with family, will face unjust suffering of a cold shoulder from members of our family, a spouse, a mom, a dad, a cousin, because of our faith commitment and what we believe regarding sexuality, marriage, or the unborn. Some of us have felt the unjust suffering of gossip or slander or had our integrity questioned because of a decision we've made or a board that we are a part of has made. See, unjust suffering can happen to anyone not just a Christian. But in the biblical text we are going to look at this morning, friends, we are reminded that unjust suffering will happen to each of us as followers of Jesus, that we are called to this fellowship of suffering. The question is not whether 
Apprentices of Jesus will face unjust suffering. The question the Apostle Paul raises for each one of us this morning who claim the name of Christ is how is it possible to stay hopeful and joyful when we face it? It's not if, it's when. So if you have a Bible this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to Peter's first letter in the New Testament, 1 Peter. And if you've been a part of our congregation this year, you know we have been going through Open Here. It's uh, a journey to get in the Bible every day. And we began looking at Genesis, and we're coming all the way to the end of the year to Revelation. And we find ourselves now in 1 Peter. It's a marvelous little letter, five chapters. It has a pastoral tone of Peter. And he begins to unpack to a group of followers of Jesus in the first century, which incidentally is the country right next to Iran today, the the nation of Turkey. They are facing persecution and difficulties for their faith. And the gospel writers tell us a lot about Peter if you have studied the New Testament. Peter had high highs, didn't he? I mean, he was with Jesus when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, goodness sakes. That's pretty high. And he was in a low, low in that courtyard in Jerusalem when he denied Jesus. So Peter experienced all of it, the ups and downs of broken humanity. But it is in the book of Acts that describes the New Testament's growth of the church, the early church, where we see Peter facing unjust suffering. He was interrogated. He had threats against his life. He was imprisoned. And there's a strong thread of tradition that says Peter was martyred for his faith, and when he was going to be crucified, he asked to be crucified upside down because he did not want in any way to diminish Jesus' suffering. It's not surprising that when we look at his marvelous, encouraging, challenging little letter as a pastor, that the thread of suffering is woven through every chapter, and if you look at it, you just see suffering, 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 suffering. particularly on Peter's mind, is unjust suffering. And what we're going to see this morning stuns us because unjust suffering, yes, has its challenges, but there is a place in his brilliant letter dripping with irony. And that irony is, yes, suffering is a challenge for the Christian, but Peter's going to say it is one of the greatest opportunities for the Christian as well. In 1 Peter chapter 3, if you have your Bible open or your electronic Bible, look with me at verses 13 through 18. And I want to suggest three things this morning. Peter gives us three helpful reminders for facing unjust suffering. When the heat of suffering is turned up in our life because we are simply Christians, because of what we believe. And these are the three truths he says. And this follows the flow of the text. First, Peter says we need to confront our fears. Confront our fears. Secondly, and surprisingly, Peter will say, we need to listen for questions. And third, he will say, look to Jesus. So the text flows in its grammatical structure around these three connections. First, confront our fears, listen for questions, and then look to Jesus. Okay, so if you're taking notes mentally or on a piece of paper or on your screen, this is where this text takes us. First is confronting our fears. You'll notice in 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 14, these words. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, 
nor be troubled. Now, I want you to notice again that Peter does not address a wide scope of suffering, like natural disasters and illness. He zeroes in on one particular kind of suffering. That is, suffering for being a Christian. You see, suffer for righteousness' sake. And what he says right away in the context is that unjust suffering brings with it some unwelcome guests. (laughs) And one of those is intense fear. It can be fear of being rejected by our friends or family at school or our work. It can be fear of physical harm or emotional harm or the fear of the unknown of what is next. Weren't you struck by watching Vahid's testimony in this video? You'll notice in the video we watched, Vahid, an Iranian Christian, speaks over and over again about not being afraid. Did you see that? And if you know his story, and I've had the opportunity to be with him and listen to his story, Vahid faced intense persecution, not only from his government, but from his family. His mom put glass in his food to kill him. And you will notice the joy when you are around Vahid. It just oozes from him. There's no paralysis of fear. And Peter says, the same thing in verse 14. He says, have no fear of them or be troubled. Now, what's important as you read God's word is to go back into the context. Look at verse 12. Why are they not to be afraid? Look at verse 12. We can grasp why. Peter says this, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and the ears are open to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So what Peter is saying is when we unjustly suffer for our faith, for simply being a Christian, for believing what is right and good and true, and for opposing evil, Peter says we can be joyful and not fearful. Why? He gives us three quick reasons. First of all, because nothing comes into your life or mine that escapes God's watchful vigilance, the eyes of the Lord. Secondly, because God hears our prayer. He not only sees, he listens to us. And thirdly, because God opposes those who do evil. So if you have been feeling the heat of being a Christian, at school with your friends, on your job, in your family, Peter says, confront your fears by remembering God is watching, God is listening, and God is much greater and more stronger, more powerful than anyone. In other words, God is on the side of what is good and right. So Peter says, when you encounter unjust suffering in your life, confront your inevitable fear with God-focused faith. So Peter addresses dealing with unjust suffering. We need to confront our fears. But he says something next that is stunning. Peter gives us some advice that at first seems kind of strange. And that is, now Peter focuses in this text that we are to listen for questions. You go, hmm. Look at verses 15 through 17. But he says, But in your hearts regard Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, what stuns us as a reader of the text is this little phrase. It's a connecting phrase 
This little phrase, notice, if anyone asks you, Peter is presuming something here under his logic. And that is, he is saying in context, followers of Jesus who face unjust suffering profoundly reveal their faith to others. The questions will be raised in those who are proximate to us in our lives. And those questions are an opportunity for us to share the good news. I remember hearing when I was younger this little statement that has kind of stuck with me because I think it's so true. Someone said, Christians are like tea bags. They really don't have a lot of distinctive flavor, nor are they really good for a lot of people until they go through just a lot of hot water. When we go through the hot water of unjust suffering, our response to it speaks much louder than when life is comfy, cozy, and easy. Oxford C.S. Lewis, brilliant apologist and writer, described pain and suffering this way. He thought deeply about it. And he described pain and suffering as God's megaphone to rouse a deaf and dying world. And often we hear that individually. We say, my own pain and suffering allows me to hear God's voice, and that is true. But we often miss that my pain and suffering, unjust suffering particularly in my life, is also God's megaphone to communicate the truth of the gospel to those around me. And this is what Peter is saying. How you respond to unjust suffering brings plausibility and persuasivity to the gospel message itself. And what Peter wants us to ask is this question, subtly but brilliantly. Peter is saying to his readers and to us, listen to this question. What is the question your life is raising? What questions is your life raising to others? Think with you for a moment. Family members, they see your life through the good, bad, and ugly, huh? Your friends at school again, your golfing buddies, your colleagues at work, your next-door neighbors, what questions are they asking about your life? Sometimes it's kind of scary. Peter wants us to dwell right here. Is our Sunday profession of our faith matched with our Monday practice? Is there a consistency between our belief and behavior? Do people see the hypocrisy of our faith or the authenticity of our faith? Peter is forcing this question on us. And if we are living a gospel-centered life, our unjust suffering, though it is not pleasant, Peter doesn't sugarcoat it, It does open the door to share the gospel with others. So what questions? Are your friends, family, people around you asking about your life these days? What are they asking about mine? And Peter wants us to address how we're responding to those questions. He's presuming 
that a faithful Christian is going to raise some questions around he or she. And so now he addresses the very real reality that, oh man, someone's asked me a question, what do I say? And how do I say it? You know, you think pastors, it's really easy for people to say, well, you know, you're in this business. Someone asks you about the truth of the Christian faith or about your faith, you know, you've got, you got all the answers. It's really easy for you. In fact, sometimes people bring people to me, you tell them. <laughs> and I understand that. I'm supposed to know something, I don't know, but all of us wrestle with confronting the fear of that moment. Let's not forget the progression of Peter's thinking here. Unjust suffering raises questions, and after those questions are raised, then we are to share the good news of the gospel, the hope that's within us. So Peter raises two questions in the text, really. What do I say and how do I say it? First, in verse 15, Peter addresses, what do we say? Goodness. And the word defense is interesting, isn't it? We think of being defensive. It comes from a Greek word that we get the English word apology from. An apology in common English today is like, oops, I did something wrong, so I got to ask for forgiveness. But apology in this context is to present a reasoned and compelling and plausible account of our faith. So the question Peter asks us in this text again, in other words, do you know what you believe and why you believe it? Have you thought enough about your faith when people ask you questions? And again, you don't have to wait for them to ask questions, of course. But when they ask you questions, can you winsomely and wisely and thoughtfully articulate it to someone? Parents, can you do that to your children when they ask you a question? Can you do that with your friends at school or on Facebook to a colleague at work? One of the things I'm very excited about is our new community group structure. One of the things we want to do as a congregation in making community groups more intentional is not only to help you connect with others and grow in your faith, but be able to be uh, equipped to share your faith wisely with others. Peter is suggesting we need to be ready. I like some of the corporate training that I've been involved in different ways, and one of them is the context, whether it's in sales or whatever work, that we are, what, we train off the spot to be on the spot. We train so that when we're asked, when we don't expect it, we can respond and do it well. Oxford's C.S. Lewis again in Mere Christianity, which was a book about defending our faith or the apologetic of the Christian faith, he says this, kind of a humorous way, I think, tongue-in-cheek. He says, it is, of course, quite true that God will not love you any less or have less uh, use of you if you happen to have been born with a very second-rate brain. (laughs) He has room for people with very little sense, but he wants everyone to use what sense they have. Then he goes on, God is no fonder of intellectual slackers. If you are thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you, you are embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you, brains and all. And this is what Peter is saying. Our words do matter. But not only words of coherent reason of the gospel, but words of our own experience. Let's not miss that. The word apology doesn't just mean getting all our intellectual ducks in a row. It is to share with others how Christ has changed our life, how his death, his resurrection, and his transformational life in our life has changed us. It's sharing our story. 
In the book of Acts, we're not all called to be apologists. We're called all to be witnesses of what Christ has done in our life. So everyone who's embraced the gospel here today can do that. And when we go through hard times, when we face unjust, unjust suffering, Peter is saying this is one of the most amazing opportunities to share the goodness of the gospel to others who are asking you questions. Sometimes I think we fear sharing our faith as Christians because we have this phantom idea that we have to have every answer all figured out to every question someone's going to ask us. That we have to be trained in seminary or an apologist or have all this intellectual ballast. And again, that is a good calling for some. Don't misunderstand that. But this idea of to make a reasoned defense, to give for the hope within us, is not just the intellectual coherency, it's the transformation of your life and mine. It is sharing your story. And you know what? Few things are more persuasive Think, me, think with me for friends around you, family members, co-workers. Few things are more persuasive regarding the plausibility of the gospel message than your life. I mean, I try to live a consistent life. I don't always do that well. I try to proclaim the message on a Sunday, and I believe it's important to come to church and bring people. Yes. But Peter's focus here is you. When people ask you, how do you respond? Not just what you respond, but how do you respond? Notice verses 16 through 17. Your words matter, but your heart matters too. The way we treat others, regardless of their political views, regardless of their worldviews, the way we treat others, if we have an understanding of our biblical foundation is that they are made in the image of God regardless. And as image bearers, we extend to them common grace even if we differ with them. And we do it with gentleness and respect. Peter could not be more clear here. And one of my concerns is all too often, people around us can't hear our words, the compelling truth of the gospel, that Jesus came, he died, he rose again, he will come again, he will change your life if you embrace him by faith and find forgiveness in your life. They can't even hear that. It's blah, 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 blah. Why? Because we get in the way. Our prideful attitudes to others get in the way. I was reminded of this cartoon that uh, someone sent me like this. It describes Peter and the pearly gates. And, uh, you know, it's a terrible view of heaven, but apart from that, I love this. Here's this guy coming. Peter's checking him out, giving him a final exhortation for us to heaven. He says, you were a believer, yes, but you skipped the not being a jerk about it part. People often reject the brilliant and coherent and plausible and transforming truths of the gospel, not just because of the message. The message is the power of God for salvation. It transforms people, but the messenger who shares it. And Peter makes the point here. He brings it all together in this little word in the text, a good conscience. What is a good conscience? A good conscience is not perfection. It is bringing together belief and behavior in a coherent life. It is walking what we talk. So are we listening to the questions people are asking us? 
Peter says people around us are going to ask us questions if we're living our faith out. Particularly when we face unjust suffering. Stinging ridicule of a friend. Not getting a promotion at work. Whatever it is. When we as apprentices of Jesus walk in Jesus' steps, Peter will say this in chapter 2, verse 21, we will face unjust suffering. It is our calling. And the Christmas season is one of the most wonderful and natural times to share with others the hope you have in Jesus Christ. So Peter says, you're going to face it. The heat's going to get turned up on you. You don't have to just be a pastor to feel the heat. If you're walking with Jesus and loving him and doing good and challenging evil in the world, you're going to feel the heat. And Peter says, that heat is a challenge. I know. I've faced it. But it's an amazing opportunity for God's glory. He says, confront your fears. Listen to the questions. And interesting, it's not just answers. Listen to the questions. And then he says, lastly, look to Jesus. Notice verse 18. Peter finishes this section with these thoughts. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So friends, how is it possible How is it possible for you and me to face unjust suffering with joy and hopefulness? Peter finishes with this grand crescendo. Look to Jesus. And notice the emphasis. This is the suffering servant. The one who faced such unjust suffering far above anything we ever could face or imagine. Can you imagine the perfect son perfect sinless son of God who spent eternity and all that mystery of time with the Father and the Spirit in perfect harmony and love and perfection. Leaving that, coming to this hideous sin-stained world, taking on human flesh, without sin, living a perfect life. The one who is threatened who was beaten to a pulp and who was executed in the most grueling execution on the cross. Not for any evil he had ever done. But simply for who he was and why he came into the world. To confront evil and to save the world from the hateful clutches of sin and death for you and me. I think we often forget at Christmas time that Jesus' birth in that Bethlehem manger was not just about unbridled delight. The context we often forget is the unjust suffering that surrounded it. A Christmas story that I don't think I've ever done a message on, so I guess I'm as guilty as any. Is found in Matthew 2, verse 16. Mary and Joseph have to flee Israel to Egypt. Why? Because King Herod unleashed holy hell 
on Bethlehem once he found out about the Messiah's birth. There's not just great joy in Bethlehem. There's great weeping. And in Matthew 2.16, we read these words. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region. Imagine this. Who are two years old or under. You talk about Sandy Hook and the heartbreak of these parents. Can you imagine the destruction of your children in front of your eyes? According to the time he ascertained from the wise men, that was King Herod. Following Jesus and facing unjust suffering, the Advent story reminds us goes hand in hand. But Peter gives us a word of brilliant hope, and that is this. Peter reminds us from the first verse till the end of his letter that suffering is never the last word. Suffering points us to the one who is and has the last word. Peter begins this letter in chapter 1, verse 3, with these powerful words of hope for us. Using the language of the Sermon on the Mount of his Lord, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Peter wants us to ask this question as well. And it's woven through his whole letter. And that is, have we experienced the new birth? Have we been born again to a living hope in the midst of unjust suffering? And have we embraced Jesus as our Lord and Savior? The very one who suffered for us and makes it possible for you and me to be forgiven and to be made brand new. The birth of Jesus in the Bethlehem manger points to the one who gives us new birth. That's what Peter is saying. Charles Wesley in 1739, that's a long time ago, found his life transformed with the truth of the gospel when he experienced the new birth and he peered into the Bethlehem manger and saw the living hope and he wrote these words. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. During this glorious season of Advent, we are reminded that those who have been given second birth are those who are called to follow Jesus, are called to suffer for his sake. And in this already not yet moment of redemptive history, we wait with anticipation. For Advent reminds us that we are in a time of expectant waiting. That we are to make room in our hearts and lives for the coming and returning king. Preston Yancey says this, Brilliantly says, he says, Advent invites us to stand in the tension of the first coming and the second. To keep our eye on the horizon because the whole symphony of this creation could come to its crescendo at any moment. I was reminded of this in such a powerful way last Saturday evening. Our Christ community staff had the joy of being a part of Handel's Messiah 
performed at the brilliant and beautiful Kaufman Performing Arts Center. We were hosted by Frank and Debbie Byrne. It was awesome. I had heard the Messiah many times, but this year I heard it in a different way. Because Handel's rendition of the words of Isaiah, the suffering servant, brought misty tears to my eyes. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He gave back to the smiters, his cheeks to them. They plucked off his hair. He hid his face from shame, and spitting he was despised. But then came Handel's hallelujah chorus. We all stood. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ and of his Christ. He shall reign forever and ever, ever and ever. King of kings, forever and ever. And Lord of lords, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Whether it is a stark Iranian prison cell or the stained rejection of a close friend, Unjust suffering is never the last word. Unjust suffering points us to the one who is and has the last word. Yes, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, your word reminds us that for momentary light affliction is producing in and through us the weight of glory. So in this Advent season, may we embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the King of Kings, if we have not. And may we experience anew brilliant beauty of our Lord Jesus, who is King of kings and Lord of lords forever and ever and ever.